Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. I'm Dr. Yola Kerbis, and this is a poor podcast. Um, so I only, I, I got in there because we, uh, although some of you may be just hearing this um, audio as our podcast, obviously, Yola was um, cueing me to get started. So I actually got it done right. Which you can see in the Patreon, if you're part of our Patreon family, which is fast. <laughs> uh, but uh, we will show this video. This is uh, number two from uh, uh, four uh, per podcast that we're yes. taping for Hills Global Symposium in Lisbon, uh, September 25, 26. So Dr. Yep. are going to talk there together, which will be very exciting. Yes. So let's jump into part two. Excellent. And thing. for exploratory laparotomy, I, I just want to say for the audience, because now we're talking surgery and I like that, is <laughs> that if you if it's worth to open the cat, mm -hmm. it's worth to make do multiple biopsies. So don't only do the lymph nodes, but then take biopsies of the GI tract, you know, of the guanum, of the jejunum, uh, anything that's abnormal, uh, because Often this is, it can either be focal disease, but it also, it can be uh, spreading throughout the whole GI tract. Yeah, and I think uh, another key point is uh, if you do open a cat like this up, for example, maybe it looks normal when you open it up, right. you still need to biopsy. So never leave empty handed is the way I like to say it. Okay. Um, so here's a couple of images from the exploratory that we did on this guy. And uh, you can see that he actually has multiple masses uh, that are mesenteric lymph nodes. Right. Yeah, so. so did you do uh, biopsies of the bowel here too? Yes, yeah, so uh, yeah, we, we, we would have done it. Typically in a case like this, we'll obviously biopsy the lymph nodes because they're unhappy. Um, and multiple uh, intestinal biopsies, it's not the colon though. Colon is not usually happy for you to go and take right. a piece of it. Um, but typically we'll also take a piece of pancreas, a piece of liver, you know, we'll, we'll spread the joy around. We usually don't take a renal biopsy unless there is an abnormality or unless we know the cat has some kind of renal disease. And we don't often, you know, do exploratory surgery and biopsies for renal disease so right yeah. and dr susan we're at half time so okay time to speed Let's up motor on okay so um, ouija ended up having large cell lymphoma and of the lymphomas that cats can get this is not the one that you want to get mm. uh, because its prognosis is not as good however ouija beat the odds this guy did not read any textbooks uh survival is typically six months with this tumor less than a quarter of cats live more than a year uh, this guy went through a year of chemotherapy with a cop protocol right. uh, uh, so he had his you know his induction and maintenance and uh, out to one year and uh, he did fantastically well i certainly learned some things because we worked with this cat for over a year uh, and 
you know, in general practice, you don't always get the chance to uh, work uh, with a patient who's on chemotherapy for for that length of time. So I, I have to tell you that I think he's 18 or 19 now, something like that. And so he's lived long enough to develop a new tumor. He's got a parathyroid tumor now. So. Right. So he's, he's going to back to a tumor that we can remove, <laughs> which is nice. Yeah. So one but of the things that I learned in working with him for a long time has yeah. also been borne out by uh, some data that's been published. And that is that owners assess quality of life primarily by looking at the cat's appetite, like how good is his appetite and whether there's vomiting or diarrhea, right? right? And I mean, so I think that's that's really important to have a discussion with owners about. And it's also really important to let them know that we can help. You know, these signs occur that we can help. So, right, and these are not the signs that you expect. You know, mm. you expect hair loss and and yeah, depression and right. right. Yeah, yeah. So um, that that's part of you know owner education. And so another thing I learned from working with Ouija is to be proactive. Uh, and I also want to give Sue Ettinger credit for this because she talks about like a toolkit that owners of patients that are undergoing chemotherapy get at the beginning of chemotherapy. And so uh, typically it'll have uh, an anti-emetic in it, like meropotent, um, serenia, uh, might have metronidazole in it for diarrhea and a probiotic and an appetite stimulant. It could be mirtazapine, which is Miritaz in Canada and the US, um, or kind of the new kid on the block for appetite stimulation is capromorelin. Um, the brand name is Elura that I think that's only in the U.S. right now. I'm not sure if it's in other countries, but there's a video playing and what's going on in the video, Yola? Yeah, in the video, uh, someone is trying to feed the cat uh, some uh, nice kibble, but the cat is uh, is is kind of turning his head away and is smacking a little bit, putting his tongue out. So very typical for a cat that is nauseated. Uh, nauseated. It is. It's not always that they vomit. It's just the aversion to food is so clear in this cat. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what that video is showing. And sometimes I'll actually just show this video to owners to say that's what nausea looks like in cats. Right. Um, so the to keep uh, our theme of the nutrition piece, there is some data showing us that body condition does affect the prognosis in cats. So again, it's really important uh, to early on be looking at the nutrition part of this and treating pain, treating um, nausea and so on. So um, this is a study of 57 cats with cancer uh, of a variety of kinds, but over half of them had lymphoma because you would expect that because it's the most common cancer. Uh, and at the time of diagnosis, uh, there was a lot going on in these cats, Yola. And the statistics that we have on this slide, I think would would might be different in dogs with cancer, would you think? Right, because it really showed uh, the underweights of of mm. these cats, and then the relationship of lower weights and prognosis, which has been shown in people. So, if you are a person and you have, I mean, I think that uh, the only reason I'm a little bit overweight is because it's better. Like that answer, yeah. So at diagnosis, like 50% of these cats with cancer were underweight. Right. You know, when cats have a reason to lose weight, they do it really well. 
But I I just want to say for this cat, because this cat does not look underweight, this Mm -hmm. cat, but you can see that it has severe muscle mass loss. So you have to be a little careful in how you uh, describe cats like this. Um, This cat has a big belly, but uh, you can see on his back muscles that there is muscle loss there. Yeah. So another good reason to do um, muscle condition scoring and body condition scoring. And so the other scary statistics from this study were over 90% of cats with cancer had already lost muscle and 60% already had a decreased body condition score. So they had decreased fat. Now, the reason that this um, study is important, it's because in dogs, body condition score and their weight at diagnosis are do not have a big role in like their prognosis and whether they'll go into remission, but they do in cats. So, and especially for cachexia, cachexia is way more significant for cats because it'll, it hits them earlier and harder than it would a dog. Right. Yep. So another cat versus dog. And there is survival statistics. So of these 57 cats with cancer, more than half of them with lymphoma, uh, this slide shows you that if the cat had a body condition score under five on a nine point scale, median survival was only about three months. Uh, versus if they were five or higher on the nine point scale, then median survival was over 16 months. Right. And again, you know, you would you don't want to really um, get too much in detail on those numbers because this was a group of cats with a whole variety of cancers, but they were able to isolate body condition score as as uh, one of the things that um, has a big impact on survival. Right. So it's not just body condition score too. It's like body weight at diagnosis uh, is also important. So this study looked at 40 cats with lymphoma and most of these guys had the the, uh, large cell lymphoma, right? So kind of one of the bad kinds. And if they weighed less than 4.2 kilos, their progression-free survival time was only 37 days, and their lymphoma-specific survival time was 98 days. Whereas if they were over 4.2 kilos, the the, uh, comparable uh, number of days is 112 and 284. So you might want to tell us, just clarify what progression-free survival versus disease-specific survival means. Yeah, so uh, the disease-free and progression-free is kind of the same thing, but the survival time is different. So uh, disease-free means that when as soon as the cat has been treated and there's no visible signs of tumor, it is that, that point in time until the tumor recurs, so the clinical signs recurs. So that's really the disease-free period or the progression-free period. The survival time is, of course, the time that the cat is treated and how long the cat survives with or without clinical signs. Yeah. So, again, there's quite a big difference um, based on the cat's body weight. So um, and that helps us know because lymphoma, again, uh, many forms of lymphoma are quite amenable to therapy. So but we want to pay attention to the uh, degree of weight loss the cat has at diagnosis. And we want to get in there doing all we can to um, help that cat uh, put some weight back on um, because it will make a difference to survival. So we have another case to talk about. Right. And we have 10 minutes left. So perfect. 
so this this um this is this was my cat this is tim uh-huh. um, we we all have and i know you do yola i know it's not a cat it's a dog but um over your adult life as you own pets there's always like one or two that are just different from the others and they stick in your heart a lot longer uh and so um that's what tim is for me so he's he uh, a particularly special cat um in my life so so i I, for the people that are listening tim is a great cat and he has a beautiful little white patch in between his front legs so it's very cute yeah cute little guy and so uh when he was about 11 years old uh my no my husband and I are both veterinarians um which does not look good for us as we talk about this guy so uh Tim's appetite was decreasing he was like less active and less playful and of course I weighed him and he'd lost about 10 percent of his body weight and every now and then I'd notice he was drooling and cats don't drool right so of course um finally took him into the clinic to, you know, do a full physical exam and run some lab work. Uh, and of course, we we often talk about this, Yola, but you have to look in the mouth of cats. Right. Right. You have to, like, no matter kind of what they're there for, even if it's just a routine physical, you have to look in the mouth of cats. And it might have to be um, with sedation. Uh, it, you know, might have to be under anesthesia because you're doing something else. Uh, whatever it is, but you need to look in the mouth. And this is this is a good example of why. Right. What we're looking at is uh, a cat mouth that is held open uh, by a person. Um, yes. Are these your figures, Dr. Susan, or someone else? No, they're not my figures. I was taking the picture. So I just want to say, uh, because the nails are very long. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, we and, and the person is pulling out the tongue. And on the base of the tongue, there is a small, I would say, one centimeter or maybe a little bit less, uh, cauliflower-like projection if it you know if it was in the uh in in the throat i would say it looks like a polyp but uh that's not what it is and the cat is being anesthetized because it also has a a e-tube in yes or a tracheal tube yeah um and and that mass is in the frenulum like it's literally in the frenulum um and that's why he was drooling because the mass grew to a point where he couldn't always keep his mouth closed Mm. And so he drooled a little bit. So you do have to look under the tongue. And that often means you have to really elevate the tongue to get a look underneath. And so, of course, a mass under the tongue of a cat who's older. Um, Yola, you always say there's two important differential diagnoses for this. Yes. So uh, it's either eosinophilic granuloma or in the worst case, it's a squamous cell carcinoma. And that's why Tim is under anesthesia. It's because we wanted to get some cytology um, of this to get a diagnosis. Um, And we also just snipped a small piece of the tumor. We didn't try to remove it um, that we kept in formalin in case the cytology didn't work out. Uh, But it was pretty clear um, he had an oral squamous cell carcinoma. And that's kind of bad news in cats, I think, isn't it, Yola? Right. It is. Yeah. Yeah. There, no matter what you do with these guys, no, whether you do radiation or whatever, they do tend to not have good outcomes. But of course, this was my cat. So I was sure he was going to be in that little group that had good outcomes. Um, so Tim had 
some uh, debulking of the tumor and then radiation. So here he is at my uh, alma mater, that's uh, Ontario Vet College in uh, Guelph, Ontario. And uh, he's being held by Dr. Paul Woods. Um, great, great guy. So he was in charge of uh, Tim's uh, radiation treatments. And right. one of the things that impressed me is before they started anything, they put an esophagostomy tube in. Which and is super important because we know that if cats get radiated in their mouth, they stop eating. And that's what we don't want. Yeah. And again, you know, body condition uh, plays a big role in response to treatment and survival. So uh, Tim had his uh, esophagostomy tube put in. Uh, it's easy for owners to feed like that. Um, this is a video that I often show owners what a feeding tube experience looks like because most people don't know what it looks like. So it, it, this I shot this video when Tim was getting one of his feedings. So he's sitting kind of in a comfy basket with a towel in it. Um, and my husband is just kind of holding Tim a little bit in place, but he really doesn't move around much. And the other pair of hands you can see uh, were are my sons, who he was 14 at the time. And uh, you can see him flushing some water through, and then he's gonna um, put some blenderized food through. So uh, there's big advantages to uh, esophagostomy tubes um, over uh, say nasogastric tubes, right Yola? That like the right. type of nutrition you can get into them is really different. Right. And I can't believe it's Ben. So that's great to see. Ben is now really uh, tall. And, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, he does our podcast. So yes. thank you, Ben, for that. But uh, no, this is great yep. to see. And it's true. So we, you know, you can blend or you can put blenderized food through a e-tube very easy. Yeah, you can put any food you can blenderize, you can feed through an e-tube. And you can see that Tim doesn't really have any reaction to it at all. Um, so this is a video that I often show people so they understand. I mean, if my 14-year-old son can do it, um, then probably anybody can do it. So it is really important to be proactive. The other thing that I learned from Tim was about pain management. So this right. is a hard picture to look at, but this is what he looked like when he came home after his uh, 10 radiation sessions. Right. Uh, and so for our listeners, there is a cat laying very sadly uh, in a corner looking at us as if he's not really enjoying life. Yeah, his face looks horrible. Um, he that he actually found a spot in my closet um, to hide himself away. And so, of course, that's pain because in this case, radiation caused mucositis. A lot of inflammation in his mouth because you can't just like irradiate the tumor and, you know, not have the rest of the mouth be affected. Um, and he, of course, did come home on a pain management regimen, but it became really clear within the first day that it wasn't enough. And so from a veterinarian's point of view, I think it's really important for us to keep in touch with owners. Uh, don't assume that what you dispense to the owner is enough. Right. Right. Dr. Susan, we have two minutes left. Okay. So, uh, here we go. We're at the end. Um, so uh, the second picture I have here is of Tim feeling way better. Uh, he's had curled his up on the couch. 
Yes, he's all curled up. Um, he's in a happy cat position. He had his, um, this was actually later the same week, he had his pain management uh, uh, changed for the better. Uh, and I would just like to show a couple pictures of him uh, so you can get an idea of how happy he was during his treatment um, because after radiation, he also had chemotherapy. And here he is like outside in my garden with his snappy little uh, feeding tube collar on. Uh, and occasionally he would eat himself so they can eat while the tube is in place. So unfortunately the sad news is that uh, Tim lasted, I think something like nine months right. before he had recurrence of his tumor. And you don't really get a second chance with these tumors. No, that's pretty common that uh, yeah. it's within a year. Yeah, but he was as comfortable as we could make him. So it's always a little tribute uh, to uh, to my buddy Tim, uh, oh. who taught me so much about cats and cancer. So, thank you, Dr. Susan. That was an excellent episode again. Um, <laughs> You know, speechless there, Yola. Just for no, I, I was speechless because I was thinking, okay, when did the dromedary discussion come up? So, was it so in the first part, part or the second part? But we we'll, won't we'll know. Part one, and you, Lola, you've been stuck on the dromedary thing now for two episodes. Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that story. So, uh, yeah, so this was the per podcast. If you want more information, per, per podcast cast.net and how far are we with that uh, dr susan are we uh we're a little out of date but you know i'm working on it right. and i and i figure for for these this episode um uh on our on our per podcast.net website i'm going to put a picture of a camel right or yeah. a dromedary i would say dromedary instead of camel <laughs> all right Do you, and hopefully you still know what the difference is uh, uh i didn't know there was going to be an exam at the end you know Right, right. See, he still doesn't know. Okay, never mind. Hopeless cause. Uh, this was the Pair Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. 
Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.